Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 259 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is the author of 10 books and hundreds of papers on requirements, design, project management, and related subjects. His ideas on requirements are the acknowledged basis for CMMI Level 4, which were based on his pioneer book, Software Metrics, where he also coined that term. He's lectured at universities all over the world, and he's been a keynote speaker at dozens of technical conferences. And in 2012, he was named an honorary fellow of the British Computer Society. So welcome to the podcast, Tom Gilb. Thank you very much, Phil. Glad to be here. Tom, that was obviously very much a summary of your professional career. So maybe could you give us some insight um, into, into how you developed your career and, wh- and where you are now? Yeah, uh, I was uh, accidentally forced into my career Uh when um, uh, I, I met my wife, who's uh, here with me in, in Norway, in London, uh, being a young lad of uh, just 17, uh, and decided to simply emigrate to Norway and uh, stay there, I had to uh, give up my uh, uh, English schooling. I was going to grammar school. I'd done uh, uh, my first year sixth form. I'd also emigrated uh, two years earlier from California. So I had a very mixed education. Yeah. But uh, the, the situation was that I really had to make a living. Uh, uh, and and so, and I had, uh, my parents had taken me to see some early Rand Corporation computers in Santa Monica, California. And I was also an amateur radio operator, loved fiddling with technology. So all the blinking lights got me and I thought, well, uh, you know, why not start with computers? This is 1958, mind you. So long story short, and it's a a long shaggy dog story here, I went uh, to IBM's offices in Oslo and said, uh, here I am, you lucky dogs, uh, hire me. Of course, uh, normally they didn't hire anybody less than 10 years older than I was with a degree and things like that. But uh, uh, they said, well, you look like a smart young lad, you can start at our... uh, punched card service bureau with uh, punch card machines from before the war, really. And even IBM had no electronic computers in Oslo at that time. But I was in and I got to play with uh, punch card machines and very quickly the electronic computers started coming on board and uh, that got me into the business. And I spent a total of, in two stints, of five years with IBM, which was a really good career start because you learned about business and ethics and things like that. And, uh, but I very quickly went out and became a freelance consultant and, uh, basically have remained a freelance consultant internationally the rest of my life. And so everything, uh, every, everything I've learned about our business, I really learned, uh, on the job, uh, as a consultant, I did spend about 10 years at what the Americans called night school at the university of Oslo studying uh, social sciences, principally sociology, philosophy. And that gave me a lot of stuff that I can use in in, uh, designing IT systems. People and organizations are pretty important there. Uh, So that probably is as good a summary as we can get in a short time. (laughs) Good. Okay. Um, So Tom, can you share with us a career tip 
um, one that the audience may not be aware of and perhaps should be? Um, I, 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 looking back, I know what I did to get promoted and recognized. And uh, but, but uh, by the way, my tips are not for everybody. I'm you know I, I, I'm me and and you're you. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I did anyway, and, and some of you will resonate with it. Um, every time there was a problem on the shop floor at the IBM Service Bureau, for example, and people were huddled around trying to get something to work, I'd sort of sniff at it. And then if they seemed stuck, I'd volunteer to solve the problem, even though I didn't know what the problem was or how to solve it. And then I would uh, use combination of persistence and intelligence and creativity, and I would solve the problem that nobody else could solve. And that, of course, uh, created a reputation that, you know, Tom has something to offer, Tom can help, and maybe Tom should be promoted. So my tip is um, volunteer to help people who are stuck, even just in a friendly way to be nice. And uh, uh, if you do help them, they they will appreciate that and they will recognize you. So the, the, the tip is, solve other people's problems uh, with their permission, of course, and uh, make friends and uh, learn things. Yeah, that's interesting that you, you talk about um, problems in, in particular. So, and, and the fact that you didn't necessarily know how to solve them at the start. So you're, you're effectively putting yourself into a situation where it may be a little bit uncomfortable and, and, and therefore you have to sort of use your um, initiative and find out what the solution needs to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as it turns out, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I have a very good analytical capability where I can take a look at almost anything and uh, see the whole picture and and find the the uh, root cause of problems. I'm just you know that's that's why it isn't for everybody, but I'm that that's one thing I'm good at is analyzing complex problems and and seeing them. So uh, I, I can tackle unknown problems. In fact, my whole career has been tackling problems that nobody else could tackle. And uh, I must admit, it's a lot of fun to solve a problem that a lot of other people have said can't be solved. There's no solution. I mean, that's just fun. Uh, <laughs> as, as time has gone on, I've learned that the way I solve problems, my analytical skills, they're not just sort of built in and mystical. There's actually, um, if you like, if you ask what's happening here, there's a method behind it. So in many of my books, I've written down some of the tricks of the trade that I've first just discovered intuitively, but in such a fashion that other people can pick up those tricks and apply them. A, a very simple example is when uh, decomposing a large IT system, for example, to smaller parts so we can, for example, uh, deliver it um, agile. I learned that a lot of people give up and say, this cannot be broken down into smaller components. It's going to take us a year. And uh, I, I, I've learned that that's not true, that almost anything can be decomposed so we can get small increments. But uh, one of 20 tricks I've written down in one of my books, Competitive Engineering, uh, is to it, don't give up. Uh, in the first five minutes and just because you think you're clever and say, uh, I can't think of a solution, therefore it cannot be solved. That's actually quite arrogant. So the, the, the key word here is persistence. And that's what I also yep. use. In other words, don't give up, just sweat it. I mean, if, it, if you have to sleep on it, if you have to use a day or two, uh, so what? If it gets solved and nobody's been able to solve it for a long time, you're a hero and you'll get recognition and you'll get uh, your career will We'll go on. So, so tip one is uh, where others give up and say it can't be done, say, well, that sounds like an interesting challenge. 
do you mind if I have a go at it? You don't have to tell them that you're uh, um, uh, not so humble and you're confident you can solve it no matter what it is. That that would be uh, impolite. But uh, just say, let me have a go. What's What have what we got to lose? Nobody can solve it. And then just yes. keep at it. Keep at it. And keeping at it includes the idea of bringing in other people, other experts, reading up on things, uh, not just solving it yourself. But don't give up in the first five minutes. Uh, sleep on it if you have to. And it's amazing how many problems get solved because you didn't give up initially. And that's one of my tips. Is uh, And yeah. I, I think there's a famous quotation from, I think it's Bill Gates, about uh, persistence, you know, just, and, and Steve Jobs too, very, you know, persistence, just hang in there. Don't give up so easily where others give up and you don't, you'll be the winner. Yes. Very true. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tom, can you tell us about your worst it career moments and what you learned from that experience? Ah, okay. Um, let's see. I can't really tell you about a worst moment. I can tell you about things that were scary where we didn't have any idea of how to solve it, but but uh, we did we did solve it. And so I don't look back on it scary. But uh, if you thought I will never solve this, then I suppose it would be scary. But I was arrogant enough or innocent enough to think uh, if we keep at it, we'll we'll solve it. But uh, I, I'll tell a silly little uh, uh, scary story. Uh, I was uh, into systems engineering, and I went to a conference in Israel. And my friends invited me to the um, the uh, institute that builds basically Israeli rockets, and uh, they uh, uh, we, we they allowed me to look at a problem with them, which was uh, extending the the uh, uh, scope of the rocket. Uh, and and I said, uh, you know, the, I, we, you know, you need to get that rocket to go longer, but you don't know how. They said yes, and I said, oh, I think there's a way of doing it. And I think that we can do this in small, simple increments that can be proven in the uh, short term. And basically, all these rocket scientists, which is a euphemism for smart people, isn't it? <laughs> uh, all these yeah. rocket scientists said there is no such thing as a small, simple improvement. You know, this is like major several years of research, and then we can get the rocket to go further. I said, no, no, there, there we, can, we can break it down into small increments that will really get the rocket to go further. And and they you know looked at me uh, uh, with wonder. I mean, you know, I'm definitely not a rocket scientist. I have no background in it, so it's pretty cheeky to claim you can do something that none of them, who are domain experts, think cannot be done. But uh, I, I, what I did was I I realized that they had some algorithms uh, steering the rocket, and there were ways of rewriting the algorithms to optimize the uh, speed, maybe by uh, the distance, by maybe reducing the speed. And I, I asked them, you know, in dialogue, if you reduce the speed uh, with this algorithm, could you then, uh, you know, get it to go 50 kilometers more? And the answer was basically yes. And they all agreed that I'd actually found something they could do in the next week or two by rewriting the algorithm to extend the scope of the rocket. So I became, uh, uh, you know, they, they were they're just amazed that I could solve that that problem. But before the problem was solved, there's kind of a scary moment, like how in the world could I, who know nothing about rockets, possibly solve a problem of rocket distances that, that they said couldn't be done? Yes. Uh, this, this turned out to be quite useful. When I got to the airport, the uh, is, is Israeli uh, people grabbed my Mac and said, uh, um, we'll, um, we're going to have to tear it down and make sure you're not you know, a spy or stealing anything. 
And I, I said, when do I get it back? And said, well, we don't know, but uh, you know, maybe in three days. And this is just before the aircraft takes off. So I got into quite a panic. And I rang the, the head of the labs, who uh, had a lot of clout. And I said, tell these people I'm on your side and to let me go and to give you my damn Mac. And he did. <laughs> so that's how I escaped from Israel. That was maybe a scary moment taking my Mac away from me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, were you made an honorary rocket scientist as a result of all that? Yes. <laughs> in, in their eyes, uh, I, I, I knew something they didn't know and I could make rockets go, go further. Yeah. But, exactly. I, but I, I, again, I, I just use some logic like um, um, I can't reconstruct the whole rocket in a week, but programs can be changed, right? And so I yeah. said, what could you change in a program? And I just started, uh, there, there's a concept here called a trade-off. If you want to go further, maybe you can go further if, and, you know, you use a different fuel, you go slower, you don't go up so high. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for those options and I was asking them, you know, could we let the rocket go slower and then get further uh, if we told the, you know, the algorithm to do that? And the answer was yes. And they, they basically said, we never thought of that. We had yep. no, you know, we, we, we really did think we had to do major re-engineering of the rocket, taking a long time to get this thing to go fa farther. Yeah, I mean, sometimes in those instances, it's just that different perspective or asking different questions. Yeah, maybe I was the outsider who could solve the problem the the specialist couldn't see. But exactly. I have a lot of a lot of stories like that where I start off and and uh, uh, you know saying I, I believe I can solve this problem probably. Uh, give me a chance. Give me you know an hour, and uh, they're all saying you know we are the experts and and it can't be solved, and we know that. And I said, well. I hear you, but I've heard a lot of people say that before. So let's have a go. And sometimes we make a bet, you know, for a dollar or something like that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can do it or I cannot do it just to have a bit of fun. Yeah, good. Okay, well, I'm hoping to be able to tap into another story. So, Tom, can you tell us about your career highlight so far? Okay, the, the things that I'm most proud of. Yes. Okay, sure. Um, uh, I was uh, landing in New York, sitting next to an Indian guy who turned out to be the personal secretary of uh, uh, one of the billionaire families in India. Uh, this is in the time of Indira Gandhi. So we're in the, I guess, the 70s. And uh, I don't know why, but he, he, uh, asked me, he asked me to come to India and help them uh, do something about the IT business, which they decided they could get into in a big way. This is long before India was doing a lot of offshore work, which, as you all know, they're doing today. And uh, he said, we can't pay you anything because of exchange rules, but we can uh, bring you, you and your wife in uh, to live like Maharajas. Uh, anything we can pay for in rupees, you can have. So my wife thought well, that was a good deal, too. So we made several trips to India, and I finally got handed over to the Tata Group, which people probably have heard of. Yep. Um, and, and, and Tata Consultancy Systems was the first very big IT supplier, but they build have hotels and own Air India and all kinds of things. And um, I wandered around India uh, with um, the, uh, uh, in fact, the chairman-to-be the chairman of the corporation, F.C. Kohli, and other people, and just talking with people, uh, with their network, it took me a while to understand that they had misunderstood something. They thought because we have very skilled people who have very low wages, we have something to export, you know, like programmers. Yeah. And, and it took me it took me over two weeks to realize that they never mentioned the word quality, uh, as in bug-free programs and stuff like that. Okay, which I was very uh, interested in at the time. 
So I, I, I said, you know what? It doesn't matter how cheap you are. Nobody in America is going to buy you just because you're cheap, because you're very far away. You're very strange and alien. We didn't even have an internet at the time, right? You're, you're almost shipping magnetic tapes with airplanes to get stuff back and forth. And so uh, nobody's going to risk their career buying cheap Indian programmers. And they said, what are you saying? I said, you have to convince them that you have not even equal quality of workmanship, but uh, clearly guaranteed superior quality of workmanship. And then you have a fighting chance. And uh, they said, uh, 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 okay, uh, we get your point. Uh, we, we used the, the experience of Japan after the Second World War, which started with very bad quality and built up much higher quality to export. We, we get your point, and they decided to do it. Now, they they decided to do it by uh, all getting accredited with the capability maturity model that you mentioned earlier. Yes. I'd, I'd done yep. that before. Um, and uh, the, uh, so if you go to India today and you ask for a catalog of all the IT, 500 or 5,000 IT businesses, they're all accredited at level four or five, which are the top levels. Um, yep. Most of the Americans sweat to get to level two and some are at level three and almost none are at four and five at this time. So that was their calling card. They said, we are clearly vastly superior IT cultures to you lot. And uh, by the way, uh, we're cheaper. So why don't you buy our IT services? Well, uh, history said this changed basically the economics of, um, uh, of India. Uh, you know, they got into the I IT business. Um, and and uh, so uh, and in in, in fact uh, um, uh, yeah so so that that's like my proudest moment that I was able with a, a simple observation a simple idea to um, participate in building up the whole uh, Indian IT economy. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go into too much, but obviously the, the CMMI, as you said, a lot of most of the, the Indian sort of consultancies and outsourcing companies are all accredited now. So, yeah. do you think there's still very much value in, in CMMI? No, uh, <laughs> I, I, see, CMMI started with a good heart at IBM as yeah. a way of uh, uh, looking at or their own organization. What happened when the Department of Defense took it over is the bureaucrats got on board. And they, they, they started bureaucratizing it by putting in far too many things and processes and permissions. And they made it into a, a business and, in fact, even a con game. You know, we'll sell you a cheap certification if you, if you give us enough money, I think, is a lot of what's been going on. Uh, so yes. it's, it's basically corrupted and bureaucratized. So today, no. But the basic ideas uh, were, were, of course, uh, you know, good, you know, improve your way of working uh, and it should give measurable results. That was the idea. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Okay. I just wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I have well, a similar well, opinion as well. MI as it is today, I think there are uh, much better things to do if you want to get better. Yeah. Okay. Tom, can you tell us what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT? Well, uh, yes and no, he said. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I'm very uh, pessimistic and, and um, uh, uh, disappointed by IT as it is today because the failure rate of IT projects is horrendous. You can just Google failure rate IT projects and, and get whatever you like. But we're, we're talking about total failure, order of magnitude 50%. And, a, and another 40% partial failure. So we 
are really bad. We disappoint our clients delivering what they expected when they start our projects. And uh, uh, Agile has approximately uh, the same failure rates as Waterfall Model ever did. So I, I think there's a mess out there, and that makes me unhappy. Now, why? Uh, but there's a little bit of happiness in thinking that one day people are going to wake up and start trying to really get better. And uh, that's exciting. But they're going. Uh, I believe they're going to have to adopt what I call engineering principles, as any discipline, whether it's building bridges or building buildings, has when they scaled up and were doing more complex and large scale things, they had to become very good engineers, even if they were uh, Egyptians 3,000 years ago. So uh, we, we have to go to tackling large complex IT systems, not trivial programming, uh, with an engineering approach. And we're far, very far away from that. Uh, uh, but but it, it, I, I know it's, it has to happen or we will continue to fail. And where we have succeeded yeah. in isolated spots, they have in fact adopted the engineering uh, method. So I think, I think it's exciting that we're going to move into a, let's call it a software engineering with real engineering or even systems engineering. And that's going to take another few decades at the rate we're going. Uh, but so, uh, I get to play with that with various clients and it's a lot of fun to see it happen what's disappointing is there's still 95 percent of everybody is still in uh we're a programmer or soft crafter mode and they uh, are not very good at succeeding and delivering the value that stakeholders need and expect but everything things take time it, it took a long time to develop the engineering habits so we could build skyscrapers too exactly yeah i mean the the industry is still very very new isn't it it's not as if we've got sort of decades of experience all these things are continuing to evolve that, that that's right so uh, uh, uh you know we're, we're only say 60 years into electronically programmed yep. computers and uh, that's when you compare that to that like uh, thousands of years of uh, mechanical bridge building or building building then then it's nothing Exactly. So I, 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 I forgive people, but I do get a bit impatient. But, but, but still, in the, in the last few decades, several of my good clients, the likes of uh, uh, Ericsson and Boeing and Intel, Hewlett-Packard, they have used these methods and they have succeeded in using them. So we, we know they work and we know that some people are early adopters, but there's still this 95% of people who persist in treating a large IT system as though it's a programming problem. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. Are you ready for this? I'm up for it. <laughs> I'm so also looking, first... by the way, uh, to, at the Oslo Fjord, and I'm looking at uh, somebody uh, on the uh, neighboring property fishing, and every once in a while there are lots of ducks and the boats go by and the trees are starting to get uh, green leaves. We're a little bit off to Britain. Here, but yep. I'm in a, a, a beautiful, uh, almost vacation-like atmosphere in the middle of our little crisis. <laughs> yeah, indeed, yes, exactly. So, Tom, what first attracted you to a career in IT? Uh, well, uh, I'm, I, I guess I, I'm a typical nerd. Uh, even from 10 years old, I think I was one of the youngest amateur radio operators in the United States at 10 years old or something like that. K6GUV was my call signal. Uh, and right. I built my own computers and antennas and things like that. So I was always a sort of a, um, a technical nerd. Yeah. Uh, my, my father, by the way, is an engineer with 100 patents. That tells you something of my genes, I think. 
So, yes. um, uh, yeah, so I was always going to play with some technology. And then uh, that, that, those blinking lights on that computer, they, they, they got my attention. That sounded like really interesting fun. So that's why I walked up to IBM and say, uh, would, would you please hire me? I'd like to play with your machines. And it's an amazing idea even today that we get paid for having so much fun playing with these toys. It is, yes. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? Ah, received. Uh, there weren't a lot of people giving me career advice, uh, but uh, let me turn this around. Uh, because of that, uh, I had to be my own advisor. I had to listen to my own inner conscience. And my own inner conscience uh, said things like, no matter where you are career-wise, um, study. Okay, I had formal, my formal studies at the university in the evenings. I read a lot. Uh, I read a lot of the technical literature. I'd read all the manuals for all the new... I, so, I, 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 uh, in other words, I was um, my, my career advice to myself was uh, keep on educating and training yourself and be ready for whatever comes along. And uh, I'm still doing that. I'm, I'm still at 79 years old in that mode of, uh, you know, reading a tremendous amount and tackling problems and seeing if I can solve them and uh, having fun doing it. So... Um, so maybe being your own career advisor isn't such a bad idea, uh, especially if you give yourself good advice. <laughs> and you want to keep on developing your basic skills, okay, yes. whatever that is. So a basic skill is, for example, reasoning and logic and analysis, and another is communication. So I'm still honing and working on those skills. Uh, for, for today, I've I've spent um, much of the day preparing my slides for lectures I'm going to do with the uh, BCS. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I'm every slide I make is an exercise in trying to communicate a tricky, complex idea uh, better. So you yeah. say, today I've been, and I keep on, uh, you know, I spend an hour on just one slide, making it more and more intelligible, more and more interesting. And I'm still learning little tricks of the trade of how to do that. Yeah, th those sort of things do take time, definitely. Yeah. Maybe yeah. if you summarize, my advice to myself was, um, you, you know, the world will change, uh, but, but upgrade your basic skills of communication, analysis, and logic, and, and just being a good teammate and things like that. And then you'll be fairly well prepared for whatever comes along. Yeah. Uh, another uh, career advice that might be very uh, important to put in here, uh, I, I uh, after about, um, say, five years, uh, I, I went through about five generations of technology, think new programming languages, new operating systems, and I learned that uh, uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, mastering a language very quickly, but uh, it was also obsolete very quickly. So I, I made a decision not to invest too much of my time in things that had a, a short half-life, like a popular programming language. Uh, I made a decision to invest my time in things that had a long half-life. In other words, things that would be useful for me now at 79 years old, like the ability to analyze the qualities of an IT system. They're very good. Yes, I think you're right about that as well. I think um, focusing too much on, I suppose, almost like fads. I suppose you could you could say rather than the actual principles of what you need to do. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you'll you'll find a lot of my one of my books is called Principles of Software Engineering Management, and it's got 144 principles in it stated. Right, 
And what I learned about principles is that good principles have uh, almost like an eternal life. They're, they're, they're true 100 years from now. Okay. Yes. So uh, in other words, in my writings, you'll find an awful lot of this, uh, the principles, because uh, they are the things that I think you need to uh, take a simple practical example. You cannot discuss architecture of an IT system without discussing the multiple qualities like security, user-friendliness, and the multiple costs like um, uh, technical debt, okay? Yeah. And, and, and those have to be clear. They're multiple, and they have to be quantified. And you cannot discuss the architecture of an IT system without knowing those things. And I find most IT architects aren't even trained to think about those things. It's just invisible. They just throw out architecture with, and they could, can't show you where they've quantified the degree of security they need. Okay, so that, But that's a very fundamental principle of any kind of architecture or design. You have to know what are you designing for? What, what are your design targets and constraints? Okay. Yeah, and exactly. it's a powerful, if I, obviously that principle applies to anything any engineers or scientists do, and it should apply to anything IT people do, but most people are not trained to do it at present moment. Therefore, they fail and fail and fail. Yes. Okay, we're going to go into a, maybe a more difficult question. Um, what is the worst career advice you've ever received? <laughs> uh, again, uh, remember, I, I, I haven't gotten a lot of career advice, and I, sure. I, I know this program is and uh, but i uh, uh um let's see worst career advice uh even to myself <laughs> uh, yes you know what I, I, as much as i realize what you're fishing for and why you need it on the program i'm going to pass on that that's fine uh, not a problem i think i've even bad advice I might have given to myself, I've quickly sensed that it was wrong, done something about it, and I've never had a, I've never had years of being in the wrong career that I've regretted. Never. Okay. So maybe maybe the opposite is be agile. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll rephrase it because I I know very clearly that I always uh, had a principle: if I'm not happy where I'm working, change it change the job at the same organization or change the organization. And there were times when I had small children and I quit my job at, for example, IBM, because I wasn't happy with the situation there and I had no job. Now that's pretty scary stuff when you're a responsible family father. Okay. And, yep. uh, but I, but I, uh, I, I did uh, new jobs always turned up. Okay. I never starved. And, and so, uh, uh, but, but the advice I was following was if you're not happy, don't suffer it just because you get paid and just because you have to feed your children, you know, change the situation and get into something where you are happy is when you are happy, you will do better work and you, you have better career prospects. So this yes. is this willingness to change dramatically what, you know, whenever rather than suffer a, a bad employer or a bad boss. Yeah. Okay. That was my and, advice myself, and I like it. But it's scary. Yes. <laughs> if you were to begin your career again in today's world, what would you do? Ah, same thing. I would invest in learning basic skills, like 100 yep. principles, and uh, honing them in practice, finding out if they worked, and being prepared for enormous change in the tech the technical things we work with in the work situation. In other words, assume everything will change radically uh, throughout your career 
And the only thing you can really prepare for is, is basic skills of communication, analysis, specification, and things like that. And if somebody says, well, where do I learn these skills? Uh, if I can put in a plug, uh, my books, papers, talks, and things like that, um, website guild.com, you'll find a whole mass of it, do yep. try to contain exactly those things. So you can read up on it uh, mostly for free from my Good. website. Excellent. We'll come back to that later. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and what career objectives do you currently have? Well, I'm 79, and uh, I, I, whether I liked it or not, I got a I got a pension quite a few years ago, so uh, which is very nice in in these uh, uh, Corona times. I just sit back and earn money doing nothing except keeping my head low. Uh, but uh, but I'm still active, uh, and because it's fun. Uh, yep. So, so my my particular career right now is uh, making sure I spread all the ideas I've learned through my life to the next generation. Okay, so that's my career. So yep. my my career advice to myself is, uh, you know, take any outlet, whether it be Twitter or LinkedIn or the web or holding a BCS course or doing an inter interview with you. Uh, take any uh, channel. Um, uh, if, if people say, I've got a problem at work, I, I, I volunteer to help them sometimes just for free. Uh, just uh, I, I do anything I can to uh, get the ideas out there, get them in the hands of younger people who, uh, when I'm no longer here, which is hopefully at least another 30 years from now, uh, will continue spreading the ideas. Okay. Yes. So my career advice is get the ideas in the hands of younger people and enough of them so that um, the, the good ideas will survive, and and the, but you need people and books, if you like, to help ideas survive. Yes, and, exactly. And that's my career advice for myself. Publish uh, orally, in writing, and uh, um, uh, nurture very good friends. I've got a lot of wonderful younger professional friends who do marvelous things. Uh, including my son, who's been working with me for a while, but he's he's the younger, younger generation, and and he's doing amazing things right now. Good. Okay. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? Quantification, the ability to quantify any critical variable, and in particular, what we call qualities, i.e., security, privacy, user friendliness, that kind of thing, uh, but also any other value like uh, clean air or uh, ethical marketing, right? Now, it, it turns out most people have never been trained to quantify these values and qualities. Uh, they, they basically uh, call them non-functional requirements. They say you can't quantify them. They don't even know how to quantify things like security and user friendliness that are so important for our trade. And they don't get that from university. So, uh, but I've, I found out, how, I can teach everybody in less than 30 seconds right here and right now how to quantify anything. Take anything, say the word IT security, yep. the word metrics after it, and Google it. And you will get thousands of pieces of good practical advice of how to quantify IT security or any other variable you put in there. Okay. In other words, the knowledge of how to do it is actually out there. But people are so ill-trained that they assume that if I don't know how to quantify security, then it's a non-functional requirement and it can't be quantified. Okay? That's bad education. Education should teach you if you don't know something, go out. And, but it's important. Go out and seek an answer. Okay. So the ability, uh, uh, all critical qualities 
Critical means it's really important for your project and your stakeholders. Uh, in order to articulate them, to communicate them, and to work, start work on them, like um, doing architecture and l later even test planning, uh, you need to quantify all of the qualities, all of the illities, all of the variable values of a stakeholder. And that's, that's skill number one. What that does is it brings you into a culture known as engineering and science. It enables you to use logic, okay? Without that, it's just blah, 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 political talk. We're going to have bigger teacups for the workers. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Quantifying, quantifying anything yeah. is the key, isn't it? And it's all about measurement. Well, here's, here's the thing. If, if a technology is stable for a thousand years, people will have learned to quantify the important things sooner or later. What we're, what we're having is we're having this tremendous rate of change of technology and culture. And so new things pop up. In, in my lifetime, a thing called usability popped up and nobody yep. ever worried about it. You know, And, and now we find things like a security or, or transparency of artificial intelligence systems popping up. And so there are things popping up that there is no tradition. You can't look it up how people did it. Nobody's ever done it. So the thing that should be taught at university is how to quantify new things that pop up that are critical. And right now, the simplest, uh, I know a lot of methods that are in my books, but the simplest thing I can tell people right now is uh, Google it and you will discover that probably somebody else has done it well enough to teach you how to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's great advice. Definitely. And Tom, what do you do to keep your own career energized? I know we touched on a lot of things and you mentioned a lot of things, but what else is there that you do? Okay, well, first thing is I make sure I'm always doing something which I think is fun. And that's what I was doing when I was 20 years old, too. Okay, so right now, fun is writing. Uh, by the way, uh, last summer, I wrote five new books at my summer cabin. This, wow. without, the year before, 2018, I wrote five new books, too. Okay, and if you think I'm joking, look at my website or look at other places, and you'll actually find the books. Okay. So the, yep. the, now, by the way, uh, there's an old saw saying, if you want to learn something very deeply, try to teach it. Well, writing a book does force you to learn things and research things. Okay. So in a sense, I'm writing a thesis every time I write a book. Uh, but I set myself a problem. Like I'm, I'm going to write, uh, I decided to write about how to quantify sustainability things like the United Nations sustainability. That's one of my books is sustainability planning. And that's one of those new things where everybody's talking about it, everybody's doing it, but people aren't very good at quantifying things like um, end poverty, sustainability goals, number one. But I wrote a whole book about that last summer just on a challenge from a younger friend of mine. You know, Tom, write a book about the sustainability planning problem. So I, wow. I, I, set, I set myself constant set of problems uh, yep. and, uh, and then by solving them and then getting some feedback, like some, sometimes I... Uh, some of my friends say, that's a lousy book, Tom, and you need to trash it or rewrite it. Well, okay, that will never see the light of day, hopefully. But uh, so I, I, get, I have a lot of friends uh, internationally and, and, and personally uh, who will give me feedback and be honest about it. And uh, so that makes sure that I don't just produce garbage. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of artists have had to trash a lot of paintings they made and had good taste and they only show the good ones uh, yep. afterwards. Yeah. So, so something like that process is I'm constantly generating things in, in writing, like uh, courses, uh, now digital courses with the BCS. We're doing f uh, five of those right now. 
um, uh, the, the, by the way, the BCS specialist group in quality and SPA are sponsoring my free talks. And there are three more to go, and the first two are recorded and available on the uh, British Computer Society specialist group sites. So if anybody wants to peek at it, they can they can do that. Great. Excellent. Okay. And I want to touch on this one, but what else do you do in your spare time away from technology? doesn't sound like you have much spare time. Ah. Uh... So well, now, if if my wife were 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 sitting next to me, which she isn't, she's she's run off. Uh, she would say he does nothing but uh, uh, look at his computer and do stuff on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> so uh, okay, w- one thing I, I do, I, I read about thirty five books a year, which are like like non IT books, you know, yep. a mixture of novels and a lot of uh, historical things. So, uh, and, and some of the books are 800 pages long, like a biography of Stalin or Mao Zedong or something like that. And I, I've, I've done that every year, you know, 35 books a year for, uh, shall we say, 60 years is a lot of books. And I still maintain that pace. I'm, um, uh, 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 and, and, okay, so that, that's one thing I do. I, I, I must admit I consume history channels in H2, and, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, science and uh, history, it's a fantastic uh, thing. It's, you know, it's almost better than reading a book because you get all these uh, pictures and, and uh, videos of real stuff. So I, I, I do spend hours and hours consuming history and scientific channels on television. That's a hobby. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I do have uh, many children and many grandchildren, and right now we don't see a lot of them for obvious reasons. But, uh, for example, during the summer, we, we sit out here for uh, months, uh, June, July, August at least, at the summer cabin. And the, the, the larger family, that is my, my sons and their children and their in, the in-laws and their friends, they all, they all come out to the summer cabin. And we... Um, um, eat a lot as, as good families will, and they go boating and fishing and sw- we swim together and uh, we have great family times the whole summer half of the year. And that's an important hobby for a grandfather. Indeed, yes. Good. Okay. Um, Tom, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT Career Energizer audience? Yes. Um, read extremely good books. And in IT, 99 out of 100 books are very poor advice. So the trick is, how do I find the really good books? Yeah. Uh, now, uh, I'll give you a hint. When I, when I leaf through an IT book, I look first for, are there any numbers on the pages? Or is it just words, words, words? If the book is words, 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 it's not going to give you a lot of information about what's real and what's factual and what will work. So the moment I find a... Uh, a, a book uh, filled with words, I just put it aside. It's probably not very useful for me. Uh, second thing I look for, it's related, it is uh, case studies and experience. If the author uh, gives you a lot of real case studies, they don't have to name the client, but they can say, you know, a, a large government organization, we did the fun. I, I like to hear stories about problems that got solved with the methods they're trying to teach in the book. Okay. And if I don't uh, for example, there's a book uh, by Jake on uh, Design Sprint, and uh, uh, there's a perfect a good example uh, of it. I, t- I take a look at the book. There's one case study. There's no good data, and the case study is about a business that's now gone out of business, and that's the entire argument for Design Sprints, except that maybe Google or in- Intel used it. But there, there, there's like 
there's nothing to prove that this thing works or works well or how it works. And so uh, I, I've you know thrown that aside as until further notice, worthless information. There are much better things out there where there are facts and figures and case studies and uh, e e e even academic studies to prove where, whether a method works or not. Let's call this yeah. the scientific method. You wouldn't want a, uh, doctors to solve the whole coronavirus problem by just words, words, words. You'd want them to measure, 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 or test, 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 wouldn't you? See? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I, I'm afraid we have too much words, 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 or blah, blah, blah in IT uh, all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and we need we need a fact-based, evidence-based culture that said, here are some new methods, and here is how they work for me and my clients, and here are the numbers to prove it. Uh, and, and then we we uh, pick, uh, in other words, be less like Trump and more like his scientific advisors. <laughs> yes, good. Okay, and Tom, um, how can we find out more about you and connect with you? Okay. So uh, you're, you're, you're welcome to publish my uh, Twitter and LinkedIn uh, accounts. Right? Okay. And, uh, and my email. I'm quite happy to receive direct uh, mail. And I, I, I don't get overwhelmed by too much mail. I can handle it. And uh, some people are very shy about publishing their email. Uh, and uh, then there's my, uh, our website, uh, gilb.com leads into everything Kai and I do, uh, 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 masses of free literature, uh, some training courses, uh, and, and uh, some tools. So guild.com is, and, and you can sign up for a blog, for example, and we do, uh, Kai and I do audio video blogs, uh, sometimes for free. Sometimes you can subscribe in the long term. Yeah. But, but okay, so long story short, guild.com, the website uh, gives access to what's going on and lots of stuff. Brilliant. Excellent. And, and of course, you know, every time I do a new talk or, or, or I'm going to announce a course at BCS or something, I, I always publicize it on my Twitter account, I'm Tom Gilb, and my LinkedIn account, uh, uh, Tom Gilb. So following me on Twitter and LinkedIn, you'd get to know the latest uh, of what's happening. Great. Most, so you should be quite easy to find. Most of it being free. I almost never put anything there that costs money. No. <laughs> great. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's hope we reach a few enthusiastic young people who will uh, make their own career a lot better by going an engineering and logical way and spread that message to other people. And maybe a thousand years from now, IT will be as good as bridge building. Hi, Phil here again. Just a final few words from me. Firstly, I'd like to thank my guests for sharing their career tips, experiences and insights with us on the show today. As you probably know, there have been more than 200 guests on the show so far, and I'm continuing to try to attract new guests that can provide great insights to all of us. However, to enable me to do this, I need to ensure that the podcast continues to grow and reach an extended audience. And you can help me in doing this by subscribing to the show and providing a rating and review in whichever platform you listen to. Thanks again for your support, and until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.